All right, we are in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. We're picking it up in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that it's by your mercy and grace that we're able to walk and have the fruit of the Spirit. We thank you that you are so good to us time and time and time again, that your mercies never fail. We thank you, Lord, that you promise that you'll never leave us nor forsake us, and you never have forsaken us. We thank you, God, that you are a faithful God that is with us every single step of the way. I pray you would continue to be with us, Lord, continue to strengthen us to walk in your ways, continue to uh, correct us when we stray. We pray that you would uh, remind us of how good you are, that you are the great shepherd that loves your sheep. We pray you'd instruct us now let us receive from you, Lord, and then respond accordingly to walk it out in faith what we hear today for your glory. Amen. So we're here in Colossians, and what I mentioned uh, previously when we were looking at the beginning of chapter 3, which goes back a little bit because we actually took a break for Christmas and then a few weeks for um, addressing pro-life issues, but when the gospel came to the Colossians, you had the Colossians getting saved, right? Gospel's going forth, people get saved. In fact, if you think about it, like every single city that Paul went to, what happens? People get saved, right? We're sending the cooks out, and what are we praying? Yep. You believe people are going to get saved? Right? The gospel goes forth, people get saved. The gospel goes forth, people get saved. So we have Gentiles that are getting saved. They didn't know anything about the Old Testament. Nothing. Nothing at all. They probably couldn't even read it because they didn't know Hebrew, uh, which is why you end up getting the Old Testament, in part, translated into Greek so that the Gentiles would have access, and actually, interestingly enough, so that the Jews would have access because they were losing some of their ability to read the original Hebrew since they were speaking and reading Aramaic. So the Gentiles get saved. The question becomes, um, how do you disciple them? Like, when people get saved, we're supposed to disciple them. Yes? The gospel goes forth, the Great Commission. It says go, but then what, what do we do once they believe? We disciple. Disciple them, disciple them, disciple them. So the early church began to place its teaching in different categories to help people easily remember it. It was a catechesis of sorts. Teachings to help them put into different categories. So in this section of Colossians, we see four different key words. 
The first one we see in Colossians, starting in uh, around verse 5, where we're told of different things to put off. Then starting in the section that we're on, uh, in verse 12, the put on. We're told to put things off, we're told to put things on. And then when we get to verse 18, uh, the third key word is the be subject. What do relationships look like? Be subject. And then finally, in chapter 4, be watchful and pray. Here's the thing. Once we get to verse 5 in chapter 3, we're really into the application of everything that Paul has said up to this point. So chapters 1 and 2, he's given us a whole lot of doctrine, in-depth, teaching, and this is how a lot of his letters go, if you actually kind of break them down and look at it and even think about it. The doctrine comes first, the teaching comes first, and then what does he do? He transitions into, okay, now let's take that teaching and let's apply it to life and tell you what it looks like. I like to use the uh, phrase that the, uh, the indicatives lead to the imperatives. So who we are leads to what we do. We have to start with that. If we reverse it and we start doing, 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 then we just end up with a shell of Christianity and we just earn, end up with an external religion. So we, we do things. That's very important to Christianity, but we do those things because of who we are and because of whose we are. That's the foundation. Salvation occurs. We're saved. We're bought by the blood of the Lamb. And then from that, from who, who we are, then come the works. So... Let's look at the three, uh, and different versions have it differently, but there's three, there's three puts, essentially. Verse 5, we're putting to death. Verse 8, it says, put away. And then verse 9, sa- or verse 9 says, put off. So we've already talked about it. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to some of those sermons addressing the first verses of Colossians. But these are things that you rid yourself of. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. We're supposed to rid ourselves of these things. Or if you're doing them, stop doing them. That's the idea. So God has certain things, guess what? That he doesn't want his children doing. You parents out there, are there certain things you don't want your children doing? Right? Well, guess what? God has the same for his children. For believers, it's not a a matter of intellect when it comes to these things that we're supposed to put off. It's not a matter of intellect. You all know it's true. You can read it. You can understand it for yourself. It becomes a matter of volition. It becomes a matter of the will. Will you live it out? Will you live it out? Now, we all know there's certain things God doesn't want us doing, and we also know there's certain things God does want us doing. And I want to repeat this from a few sermons ago, because that being said, Christianity primarily isn't about a bunch of don'ts. And Christianity isn't actually primarily about a bunch of do's. It is primarily, get this, walk away with this, if nothing else today, it is primarily about the gospel. The primary message is the gospel. That's what changes everything. All right, no gospel, no Christianity. 
It changes everything. Now, here's the thing. The gospel has demands. Even the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ, it has demands. What's the demand? Repent and believe. I mean, that, that's, that's the demand of the gospel. If you want to b- follow the gospel, if you want to believe it, and what is the gospel? What is the good news? That God sent his own son, and his own son lived the perfect life for us, and then was crucified. While he was crucified, his sins, sorry, our sins were placed on him. He didn't have any sin. But our sins were placed on him. And, and what did God do? God punished his son so that we didn't have to be punished. So we can avoid the wrath. Why? Because Jesus paid the penalty. He paid the wrath. The, 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 the crucifixion alone, very, very painful. Much more painful to receive the wrath of God. And if you don't repent and believe, guess what? You will receive the wrath of God. And where will you end up receiving that wrath? In hell. Right? Hell's a real place. People are going there. People are there. They're being punished justly for not repenting and believing. That's, that's what it gets down to. So the, the gospel message is the primary thing, but the gospel does place a demand. I mean, if you, if you want to know God, if you want to have a relationship with him, you have to repent and believe. Can you have a relationship with God without repenting and believing? You actually can't. Okay, you're, you're an enemy with God. I mean, if you just take like a husband and wife uh, relationship, I know husbands like rarely like sin against their wives. It's like super rare, right? But on the off chance that they do, uh, only the foolish husband, which is, which is most of us, will occasionally just try to act like everything's fine. Right? You've sinned against your wife and then you just, you come back or whatever, sometimes five minutes because we're really foolish. <clears throat> but we come back and we're just like, we just want to act like everything's fine. Right? How does that go over? Not good. Okay. Well, I mean, so take that with God. The Bible says that we're enemies of God. So if we just kind of waltz up to God and try to act like everything's fine, he's like, um, you've sinned against me. We're enemies. You're my enemy. Everything you do in your core comes against me. Now, I offer you terms of peace. We can't negotiate here, but I offer you the terms. And the terms, really, it's the gospel. Repent and believe. So that is primary. And we need to, we, we need to make sure when we, when we share the gospel with, believer, or with unbelievers, we should make sure that, that we clearly communicate that there are certain things required of them. Like you share the gospel, I mean, what you're communicating is you need to repent and believe. That should be there. Repent and believe. And Jesus, just read through any of the gospels, and what did he come preaching? The kingdom of heaven. But included in that, and you'll see it time and time again, repent for, for what's at hand. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That's at hand, but you, but you have to repent. So repentance is key. And God, in his graciousness, has given us a new life. Amen? What comes with the new life? Well, with the new life comes new ways, comes new habits, comes new patterns, and new living. What's one of the most frustrating things when you, when you buy something new? Especially if you like, spend some money on it. What's one of the most frustrating things? It's when it, like, it breaks right away or it doesn't work. Just right out of the box, it's not working. So uh, my second oldest son, Job, bought a computer uh, recently. 
and it's already having issues. And, and he's frustrated, understandably. Why? Because you expect new things to act like they're new. True? So new creations act like new creatures. They act like they're new. So the metaphor that is being given to us, starting even way back in chapter 3, where it's telling us to put things off, it's really the metaphor of clothing or of garments. So you're, you're taking off like the earthly garments and you're putting on the heavenly garments or the heavenly clothes. So what are the earthly things? Well, that's the sexual immorality, the impurity, the passion, the evil desire, the covetousness. What are the heavenly garments that we're commanded to put on? Now we're back into verse 12. What do those things look like? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Those are the things that we're supposed to put on. Now think about it for a moment. In verse 5, those things, if those things are done, those things disrupt the life of the church. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, that affects body life. It affects body life. They're sinful. They cause disruption. They cause division. And, and we're going to see that the ones that we're commanded to put on are actually integral to body life being lived out the way God wants it. Now, how is it possible to, to even wear these clothes? How is it possible? Well, it's possible because of who we are. And that's where Paul starts in verse 12 by telling us who we are. Look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So chosen ones, literally the chosen ones of God. Some versions even, I think, translate it that way or close to it, the elect of God. It has a, a subjective genitive meaning here. Anytime you have the word of, you have to kind of pause. So the chosen ones of God, well, God is the subject, and he's the one that's doing the action here. He's the one that does the choosing, which makes sense because you, I mean, you can't elect yourself. That'd be silly. But all who participate in Christ's death and resurrection are now identified as his own people. Think of the language in verse 11. What does it say? There's no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. Right? I mean, what is he making the point? That all who participate in Christ's death and resurrection are now identified as his own. If, if you're Christ's, then it doesn't matter your, your nationality. Jew, Gentile, you're Christ's. First and foremost, that's who you are. And it's interesting because this description... God's chosen ones, this is the same language that God used with Israel in the Old Testament. Same language. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, it says in verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Notice the same words in this passage alone just used to describe us in Colossians. Holy, chosen. Twice the word chosen is used. Twice the word love is used. And we see this over and over in the Old Testament, this term used of God's saints. Look at Psalm 105. Verse 1, Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done. His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Abraham, His servant, Children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Then if we even go down uh, about, I don't know, quite a few verses towards the very end of the psalm, in verse 43, the same psalm, he says, So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And over and over and over we see this term applied to Israel in the Old Testament. And I mean, what's the idea there? Well, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. If you're God's child, you're God's child. There's no ranking. There's no higher or lower. The, Jew, the Jewish believer isn't any higher or lower than the Gentile believer. Same with this term, holy ones. It's a, it's a very typical Old Testament name for Israel. Look what he says in Exodus 19. Y'all turn in there? Okay, just making sure. Picking it up in verse 5, Exodus 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice... And keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So again, we see that whole, the, whole, the idea of holy ones. In this case, he says holy nation. You guys know what book this is uh, quoted in in the New Testament? First Peter. First Peter. He quotes it, and, and what does he do? Peter applies it to us. Now we're the holy nation. Uh, why don't we just look there? First Peter uh, chapter 2. 
So he starts in, in verse 4 of chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So there's that word holy again, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's us. That's us. That's us. So, same language used of Israel in the Old Testament, used of the New Testament saints. What about beloved? We find that same language used as well. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 33. Here Moses is given a final blessing to, to Israel and blessing each of the different tribes. Here he specifically blesses Benjamin in verse 12. And he says, oh, of Benjamin he said, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. The beloved of the Lord. Same word that we're seeing here in Colossians. And look what he says in Jeremiah about Israel, Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah 11, let's see, let's do verse, oh, let's start in 14. Therefore do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. This is the broken covenant that's being discussed and God's sending them uh, into uh, exile. He says, what right... Talking about Israel, what right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? And he goes on and talks about what Israel used to be and now in, in disobedience what they are. But even thus, verse 15, what right has my beloved in my house? So at a minimum, we see that the church is the continuation of true Israel. 
We've been grafted in. I want you to notice something else about this word beloved, though. Go back to Colossians. Because it's used a few times here in Colossians. Look at Colossians 1. In verse 7, it says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So, first, verse, verse 7, seven verses in chapter 1, seven, it's applied to a servant of God, to a believer. At the very end of Colossians, look in chapter 4. Verse 7, it says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother. He's a beloved brother. Which, I mean, that makes sense, right? Because if we're beloved, then that means Tychicus is beloved and Epaphras is beloved and Paul's beloved and we're all beloved. But then notice back in chapter 1, notice who else is beloved. All these are the same Greek word each time. Verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. This idea of beloved evokes a family relationship where family members resemble each other. Just like it says in Ephesians 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. And the thing is, we are beloved because Jesus was first beloved. Put another way, we're loved by God because Jesus is loved by God. He loved his own son and sent his son. And it's because, really because of his love for his son that it extends to us. That means what? Remember, our identification is with Christ. And usually we, we, get, we get a lot of the blessings that Christ gets. We get heavenly riches. Why? Not because we've earned them, but because Christ earned them for us. We get forgiveness of sin. Why? Because we merited it? No. Christ merited it. He merited it. Everything that we get is, is total grace. It's total grace. We have not earned anything whatsoever. But Christ has earned it. He's merited it. He's merited it for us. He merited what we could never merit and what we can't merit. He got it for us. So guess what? When, when we're in Christ, and that's where our identity is, where you see those two little words, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, all throughout the New Testament, if you're in Christ, that's talking usually about our union with Him. We're in union with Him. You know, and sometimes it's like, He's in us and we're in Him. I mean, there's like this... this uh, true biblical co-mingling of sorts. But most of the time it's in Christ where the idea is, is, is the picture is, is us being united with him. There's a union that we have that he forms by God. So our identification is with Christ and that's where we get riches and blessing. Why? Because Christ gets the riches and the blessings. That's why we're the beloved. Because Christ first.
was the beloved. Pause for a moment and think about this. This is God's view of you. You are his chosen. Think about how precious Israel was in the Old Testament. Time and time and time and time and time again, he came to their rescue. True? Time and time again. Were they faithful? No. Most of the time, not. And over and over and over, he came to their rescue. Guess what? That, that's what your Heavenly Father does for you. He comes to your rescue time and time again. In the greatest way, through his son Jesus saving you from your sins. But if we're honest and realistic, over and over again, he saves us from different circumstances. He's gracious to us. He's there for us. Did we earn it or merit it? Nope. But he's there. Even when we are just like Israel in the Old Testament and we are faithless. And again, if we're honest, we have those times where we're not very faithful. It says, I think it's in 1 John, it says, when, when uh, we are not faithful, he still is faithful. Aren't you thankful for that? So this is, this is our Heavenly Father's view of us. So we're the chosen, we're the holy, and we're the beloved. So I, I don't see the word ugly in the text. And I don't, I don't see the word defiled in the text. I don't see the word disgusting or stupid in the text. You, you need to rebuke the negative voice in your head that says those things to you. That, that's, ultimately, that's, that's from the enemy. That, that's not how God sees you. Okay? You want to know how God sees you? Let the scripture define and tell you how God sees you. Holy, beloved, chosen one. So quit using the devil's eyeglasses to see yourself. And use the lens of Scripture to see yourself. So why do we act in a holy way? Why do we want to put on these heavenly garments? Because we serve a God who is holy. And over and over and over and over and over again, the command is for us to be holy. Look at Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11, verse 44. It says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Over and over and over again, that's what God comes back to be holy. What's the basis for it? Because he's holy. Over and over and over. Turn a few chapters. Leviticus 19. We're going to see the same thing. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. And say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
I mean, that is the refrain throughout, from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. Be holy, for I am holy. So we act in a holy way because God commands it. And why does he command it? Because, I mean, that is the foundation and character of who he is. Holiness. Holiness. What's our basis for putting, putting on these heavenly garments? The basis is who we are in Christ. This goes back to, to who, the indicatives, the statements of fact. Because we are the chosen. Not will be, could be, might be, hope to be. No, because we are the chosen. Because we are holy. Because we are the beloved. Therefore, we can put on the garments. Therefore, we can walk it out. Therefore, we can walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. The indicatives lead to the imperatives. Who we are puts us in a position to actually do what we're commanded to do. And here's the thing. When we look at this list, and you compare it to other New Testament virtue lists, um, some of those virtue lists, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, they have purity, joy, righteousness, faith, knowledge. Those are good. I mean, they're there, and we need those. But in this list in particular, it's singularly focused, listen, it's singularly focused on building and maintaining a community characterized by love. That's why he gets to the last one, and he's like, and love brings it all together. But the idea is building and maintaining a community characterized by love. If you think about it, if we have the compassionate heart, the kindness, the humility, the meekness, and the patience, which then leads to bearing with one another and forgiving one another, that puts us in a great position to live together in unity. True? And so I'm, and I'm paraphrasing uh, a theologian uh, here. He says, <clears throat> all these garments can be only worn in community with others, in relationships. How tempting to think that these garments would be so much easier to wear if we did not have to wear them among people. Right? Because I, we're always like, well, it's real, I can be kind when I'm at home, not around people. My wife is shopping and my kids are outside, right? I'm very kind. Kind to myself, right? But he's, he goes on, how much easier to think about compassion than to do it? How much easier to be kind when we are away from mean people? It would be far easier to put on humility and gentleness if we were not being jostled by the proud and assertive. This is one of the reasons uh, I have an issue with, you see on social media sometimes, like you need to get the toxic people out of your life. I'm like, man, if we got the toxic people out of our lives, there wouldn't be anybody left. I mean, it's true. Because we're all toxic in ways. But, but, we, but the message that sends is, is, we, is one, it says it's everybody else right? That's one of the messages it sends. Uh, and, and, and two, it just, it just reeks of, of a selfishness. Like, if people could just fix themselves, then I, I could do so much better around them. Well, why don't you fix yourself? Why don't you learn to be around challenging people that are hard to be with and hard to mingle with? There's, there's challenging people within the church, all right? Truth be told, you're one of them. <clears throat> I mean, has anyone ever really thought of themselves as a challenging person? 
No, it's always somebody else, right? Well, some of them have to be wrong. <laughs> he goes on, how much easier patience is in isolation. But that is not the way it works. Christians become better Christians in community, in their families, among their associates, in their dorms, in their churches, where there is sweat and breath. The truth is, the very things we may think are keeping us from putting on these garments are the things which make possible their wearing. All right, let me repeat that again. The truth is, the very things we may think are keeping us from putting on these garments are the things which make possible their wearing. You want to put on kindness? Guess what? You, you're, if you're around a mean person, that's a great opportunity to figure out and put on kindness and walk in kindness. Very easy to walk in kindness around kind people. You want to put on patience? Be around impatient people. Very easy to be patient when others are patient with you and the circumstances are great. You're around someone impatient? Guess what? You start getting impatient. That's the tendency. That word, uh, clothe yourselves, or here in, in the ESV, put on, it's a present imperative. What's the idea? We have to put these clothes on, and we have to keep putting them on and keep putting them on. I mean, it's kind of like daily living, right? Every day you, you put on a new outfit, um, unless you're a college student, okay? But, but most of us, we put on a new outfit each day. Well, that's the idea here. Like, we have to continually clothe ourselves with these things. It's not like, oh, I got the kindness and I'm good to go. Daily, we're putting on kindness. We're putting on compassionate hearts. We're putting on humility. We're putting on meekness. We're putting on patience. Uh, there's a study that's been done. Actually, it's more of a survey. I guess a survey is a study of sorts. But it's been, it, the same survey has been done uh, for over 50 years. Same questions, same, uh, same survey. The nice thing, when you, at, when you do the same survey for 50 years and you ask the same questions, then you, you have a pretty good track record to, to track things pretty accurately, as long as the questions are fair, right? Well, this particular uh, uh, survey uh, focuses on churches and people's denominational affiliation and different things like that. It's very interesting. When it talks about mainline Protestant churches, Mainline Protestant churches, usually when you hear that term, mainline Protestant, um, it refers to all the big liberal churches. So the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, that branch of Lutheranism would be one of them. The United Methodist Church, that branch, or that one would be uh, one of them. Um, the Presbyterian USA, really big denomination, very liberal. When you hear that term, mainline Protestant, it, it really is just saying like the big liberal churches, if, if we're honest. But so they're doing, they've been doing surveys of all these, including charismatic and all those um, non-denominational. But they've been tracking all sorts of different things. One of the things they've been tracking is 18 to 35-year-olds in the survey. And back in the 70s, uh, 18 to 35-year-olds, there's about 10% that identified with one of those mainline Protestant churches. 10%. Guess what that percent is down to today? 1.5%. 1.5%. Uh, the gentleman who, who does the study um, says, very soon I won't be able to do any analysis of this group 
because the n, you know, I mean like the scope and, and, the, and the range, the n is too small. The percentage is too small to be able to do any real analysis of the group. I mean, what is that saying? Like the 18 to 35 year olds, they're leaving, uh, they're leaving those liberal groups. They might be leaving uh, conservative as well. The more popular term that you might hear or you will come to hear is the nuns, not the ones with the habits and you know, are part of the Catholic Church, but N-O-N-E-S. That's the term that refers to people who don't, aren't affiliated with any church at all. They're called the nuns. And um, so uh, that number is, is, is skyrocketing. But here, people are dropping out in this, in this group. Well, why? Well, because, I mean, if, you're a, if you know anything about, like, liberal Christianity, liberal Christianity, I mean, what does it have to offer? What does it have to offer? Yeah, sin, right? I mean, it, but it doesn't really have any hope to offer. I mean, truth is subjective. I mean, everything is just is whatever you want. Well, I mean, I can get whatever I want, uh, you know, Sunday morning sleeping in. That's, that's whatever I want, right? So, I mean, these people are growing up, and they're not being given truth, and they're like, oh, why stay? Well, here's what I say. Let's, let's pray for these 18 to 35-year-olds. Let's reach out to them. Let's give them a gospel. Let's give them a reason to come to church. I mean, they've had a false gospel. I, I had a false gospel. For 17 years, I had a false gospel presented to me. I grew up in that mainline Protestant church, the Lutheran branch, the ELCA, super liberal. Let's give them a real gospel. That's what they need. That's what they need. The, the, the liberal churches have tried to, I mean, they are lockstep with the culture. And what has been the result? Tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands, leaving the denomination. They've tried everything to blend in, to fit in, to go along, to get along. It doesn't work. I mean, God has built it into us, truthfully, to want the truth. He, uh, Ecclesiastes, he's put eternity in our hearts. He's given us a conscience which can be seared. And he's created a world that cries out, he is real. And when we start saying anything goes and, and believe in whatever God you want, I mean, that's not a, really attractive to anybody. It might be attractive to your flesh, but when you're hurting, when you're in a, in a bad place, there's a, a viral video, I don't know if you've maybe seen it, where um, this young, probably 20-something, is bemoaning the fact that she works 40 hours a week and after her rent she basically has no money left over and and people are uh you know she's crying and everything and, and it went viral and people are making fun of her but really what we should be doing is that that girl needs the gospel because what she's seen is the curse of adam like you toil and you toil and you toil and guess what sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's enough and you toil and you toil and you toil and you end up reaping what? Sometimes not that much. So she needs the hope of the gospel and maybe a smaller house. I don't know. <clears throat> but she, I mean, that's what she needs. She needs to realize, like, it's a fallen world. And sometimes you can toil and toil, and it doesn't feel like you're walking away with much. And she probably needs a godly husband as well. She's not married, right? I mean, if, when, you, when you walk according to God's standard and walk according to his ways, like, he blesses you. Good things usually happen. 
So I say we, we find these people. I say we preach the gospel to them. Let's give them a reason to come to church. Let's give these people a reason to be involved at church. They've had a pseudo-community in these liberal churches. Let's give them a biblical community. And let's give these people a reason to stay involved in church. They've done work that doesn't involve the gospel. Let's show them work that carries the gospel with it and makes it integral to it. Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we have the answer. An, an article uh, just appeared in an online uh, newspaper. Here's the title of the article. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. That's the title of the article. And this atheist writes the article, and here's what he says. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. Why? Because Christianity liberates people from the crushing passivity created by African worldviews. Fear of evil spirits, of ancestors, of nature in the wild, of a tribal hierarchy. Freeing people from such deeply rooted fears takes much more than material help or technical know-how. A worldview can be replaced only by another worldview. Notice that he doesn't present his own worldview to help Africa. Why is that? Because he knows it won't help. He knows that his worldview goes to what he just said. It's just material help and technical know-how. He, he, he grew up in Africa, so he, he witnessed firsthand, um, he says, how those who became Christian gained a sense of dignity and confidence. He goes on, as a confirmed atheist, I become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's like reading like the Babylon Bee or something. I mean, atheist proclaims the greatness of the gospel? But no, it's real. <clears throat> As a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Those are all his words. All his words. So, I mean, I mean, even the unbeliever is recognizing. Like, what we believe, God uses it to change hearts. God uses it to change families. And guess what? God uses it to change nations and continents. Where would this country be without the gospel? It'd be a dark place. It would be a dark place. In parts of Africa, there's a darkness there. Why? Because the gospel hasn't gone forth. It hasn't protruded. It hasn't invaded there. Well, that's why we pray. That's why we go. That's why we get the gospel out there. So, we're blessed, brothers and sisters. If you're even hearing this message, you're blessed. If you arrived here by a vehicle, you're blessed. If you woke up in a bed... You're blessed. You'll, you'll probably, some of you might go out to eat or grab food on the way home. You're blessed. And we're blessed by God with the real thing. The gospel. The real Jesus. And we're blessed to have the heavenly wardrobe that we can put on. Let's wear it. And let's talk about it.
Let's put on the garments, and then let's walk it out for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray for the unbeliever. We pray for uh, people like this, this man who wrote this article. In one sense, his eyes are open, but in another sense, they're not. Um, he's still an atheist. God, be gracious to save his soul. Be gracious to let the, the light of the gospel continue to penetrate into the African countries and the Muslim countries, the Asian countries, everywhere, Father. We continue to pray for our uh, brother and sister, uh, the Cooks, Raymond and Leanne, their kids, let your hand be upon them. Give them favor, God. Let them learn the language uh, quickly, efficiently, uh, and, and well. And let them, Lord, um, put their hand to the plow and not look back. Give them favor in the sight of the other people that they're around, the Indonesians, Lord, that you would be gracious to them, that they would uh, be able to plug into a church there as you prepare them to go to where there is no church, literally. Lord, let us continue to pray with them, stand with them, support them financially, be the church to them. And Lord, let us continue to go. Let us continue to go and be faithful. Let us continue to be the ambassadors who share your message. Let us continue to, those 18 to 35-year-olds, Lord, that are disillusioned, that young lady who is discouraged and disillusioned, let us reach them with the gospel. May we open our mouths and share and do it for you, Lord. Amen.